As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 21, Run, Louis, Run. Unsurprisingly, with a title like that, there will be no prizes for guessing the topic of today's show. With Mirabeau dead and the extremes of the political spectrum on the rise, the royal family finally made a dash for the exit. As we shall see, things didn't go quite to plan. For those of you that are interested, I have put a series of maps together on the website and there's a link in the episode show notes, so if you want, you can visually see just how this escape pans out. Now, before we jump into it, do keep your eyes and ears open for a short show update that I'll be releasing in the next few days. The update will include information on upcoming changes to the show, how long we'll be discussing the French Revolution for, what season two will be, and all the various bonus content that will shortly be available for Patreon supporters. So do be on the lookout for that update as it will come out in just a few days. Anyway, without further ado, let us begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 21, Run, Louis, Run. By the spring of 1791, the French Revolution was dangerously unstable. While the Feast of the Federation held in July 1790 might have preached a message of revolutionary harmony and national unity, the reality was anything but. When Mirabeau died on the 2nd of April 1791, not only did he lament that his death heralded the downfall of the French monarchy, but he predicted its corpse would be the spoil of factions. Mirabeau's fear of factions consuming not just the monarchy, but France itself, was certainly not unfounded. From the legislature to the streets, from Paris to the provinces, from the clubs to the churches, division reigned supreme, and the enemies of the new regime, both on the far left and the far right, were on the rise. As discussed in episode 16, the National Assembly can be loosely divided into three camps, which themselves splintered into further smaller groups. The Conservatives, with their pro-church, pro-monarch, pro-aristocrat agenda, had suffered terrible defeats throughout 1790. Many of their members had quit the Assembly in disgust as the legislature passed decree after decree assailing the power and authority of the church, the king and the nobility. Opposite the Conservatives, the Democratic deputies on the left side of the chamber represented a variety of ideologies. The left and the far left contained progressive liberal monarchists, republicans in the closet, and authoritarian populists who didn't really care if France was a kingdom or a republic so long as the people were empowered. Like the conservatives, 
the democratic left had suffered their own defeats throughout 1789 and 1790. Most notably, the distinction between active and passive citizens enraged the Democrats, and the King's suspensive veto irritated many. But there had been other, more recent, high-profile defeats as well. In February 1791, Mirabeau derailed the proposal to make emigration illegal, while the Assembly voted in April to limit the National Guard to only active citizens. Compounding previous defeats, in May 1791, the Assembly voted to make petitioning a right belonging to only active citizens. In other words, political clubs, Parisian sections, and most importantly, all passive citizens could no longer petition the government. This was a huge setback for the Democrats, as it essentially completed the total disenfranchisement of passive citizens. Not only were the masses denied a vote, but through the curtailment of petitioning, they were also denied a voice. Interestingly, the faction with the most votes in the Assembly, the Centre, which was composed of constitutional monarchists, it was this faction that was unable to fully exert its potential power, even before the death of Mirabeau. Prior policy decisions had made it near impossible for the Assembly's centrist faction to form a meaningful, stabilising alliance with either the Democrats or the Conservatives. Having rejected the democracy embraced by the left, and having assaulted the church and the nobility held dear by the right, a permanent, durable coalition with either faction was more or less out of the question. Thus, the Assembly was deeply divided, and as power rested with no permanent majority, it was also tremendously unstable. This instability and division was reflected in the nation itself, a nation which had become increasingly radicalised and polarised as the revolution wore on. Outside of the legislature, the weakest factions were the most powerful, whereas the centre theoretically held the most votes, and thus power in the assembly, it was the left and the right which held power in the streets. More specifically, it was the extremes of the left and the right which held that power. The terribly divisive and polarising debates of 1790 had gradually empowered the staunchly democratic far left and the brazenly reactionary ultra-royalist right. Unfortunately for the centrist constitutional monarchists, both of these factions loathed the current system and were intent on overturning it. The events of 1790 undeniably empowered the voices on the far left of the political spectrum, particularly in the capital. For some time, many Republicans and authoritarian populists had a variety of ideological grievances with the constitutional structure of the new regime. But it wasn't immediately clear how the left could address these grievances. Now, to recap the objections that the far left had with the new order, we can conveniently look to a publication by Jérôme Pétion in April 1791. The prominent far-left deputy and future mayor of Paris detailed three key objections he had with the yet-to-be-finalised constitution, and these objections reflect the grievances of the far-left more broadly. Firstly, Pétion rejected the king's veto. Like many Democrats, Pétion detested the king's involvement in the creation of new laws and believed that legislation should be the sole domain of the legislature. Secondly, in further repudiating the powers of the king, Pétion argued that the monarch should hold no authority over the public service. 
What this meant in practice is that the king should not have the right to appoint ministers or influence the decisions of other important office holders, such as senior military personnel. Finally, Petion rejected wholeheartedly the distinction between active and passive citizens. The eligibility requirements to vote and run for office were contrary to liberty and repugnant to reason. Now, although this manifesto of sorts was published in April 1791, these sentiments had been shared by a variety of left-wing radicals for some time, albeit less publicly. Members of the Parisian press, the Parisian sections, the Parisian political clubs, and even some corners of the Parisian municipal government also harboured these objections towards the new constitution. But the question for many was, what the hell could they do about it? Until late 1790, most Democrats weren't particularly vocal about their Republican ideals, and they also weren't sure how to push for revolutionary reforms while also adhering to the fabled constitution. With the exception of a few more radical journalists, many were wary of publicly breaking with the new regime, and thus a tangible way forward wasn't immediately clear. But as 1790 dragged on, an opportunity for the political clubs to escalate their activities came off the back of the terribly divisive religious debates which were gripping the country. As early as April 1790, the American ambassador William Short noted that Paris was almost at the point of explosion as the city was gripped by Dom Gell's divisive proposal to proclaim Catholicism as the sole religion of the state. The Dom Gell affair and the subsequent debates surrounding the civil constitution of the clergy may have sparked pro-Catholic riots in some parts of the country, but in revolutionary Paris, it helped to awaken anti-clerical sentiments. The later refusal of so many priests to swear loyalty to the constitution, the discovery of counter-revolutionary plots linked to the Comte d'Artois, and the ominous threat posed by the noble emigration only swelled these anti-clerical passions further. All of this came to a head in March 1791, when Pope Pius VI publicly condemned the civil constitution of the clergy. The Pope proclaimed that the installation of constitutional bishops was sacrilegious and demanded that every priest who had sworn the oath to the constitution recant within 40 days. In response to the Pope's demands, a fresh wave of both anti-clerical sentiment and public unrest erupted across Paris. Effigies of the Pope were burnt in the streets, while convents were broken into and vandalised with revolutionary slogans. Monks and nuns were harassed by intruders as mobs invaded religious buildings to look for those who had not taken the oath, referred to as non-constitutional priests. To top it all off, the papal ambassador received an unexpected donation to the church. A severed head was thrown through the windows of his carriage. Unsurprisingly, the left-wing press and political clubs of the capital made the most of these anti-clerical sentiments, simultaneously encouraging disturbances while also radicalising the people. Now, to give you a taste of just some of the anti-church publications, well, what they looked like, Here's a quote from the radical journalist Jacques-René Hébert in November 1790. Written on the 28th of November, Hébert details how the people should respond if the Pope tried to prevent the civil constitution of the clergy. 
My blood boils. Tell me, Frenchman, is it possible if that man you call Holy Father takes into his head to oppose your laws, do you dare? Are you stupid and base enough to give them up? What do you expect from a Pope? Screw the Pope. Believe me, it is your turn at last. For ten centuries, the Pope has screwed you. Screw the Pope. I feel like that's the 18th century equivalent of fuck the police. The anti-clerical sentiment in that snippet highlights the sort of material that was regularly being produced, in addition to the radical bloodthirsty publications we've discussed in the past. Marat was still using his journal to call for the heads of a few hundred nobles, clerics, and everyone in the government he thought was corrupt, which was almost the entirety of the government. As you can imagine, however, it wasn't too difficult for radical agitators, both in the press and the political societies, to channel the people's anti-clerical attitudes against all the creatures of the old regime, including the king. Linking the counter-revolutionary church to the counter-revolutionary aristocracy was just a matter of presenting the facts, and tying both of these public enemies to the monarchy didn't require much of a stretch at all. Unfortunately for Louis, the king's own actions helped with this terrible counter-revolutionary co-branding. The king was a devout Catholic, and I really do mean that. Unlike the long list of leaders who have paid lip service to religion to secure their thrones or aid their election campaigns, Louis XVI was a sincere Christian. What this meant is that the religious reforms of 1790 weighed heavily on Louis' conscience, and the Pope's rejection of these reforms made this burden even more unbearable. Eventually, Louis decided he could not receive communion from a constitutional priest. He therefore replaced his chaplain, who had taken the oath, with one who had not. The revolutionary press was outraged. The king was openly flouting the laws of the land, bowing to the will of the Pope and surrendering France in the process. Louis was worshipping with the assistance of a traitor, and some suggested that this meant Louis was a traitor himself. The outrage this controversy created mixed with the already contentious facts that the king's own brother was leading the émigrés, and that both rebellious nobles and seditious priests were swearing loyalty to God and king as they conducted their counter-revolutionary acts. Thus, the popular societies and their allies in the revolutionary press were fast able to harness the people's anti-clerical attitudes to weaken the prestige and authority of the king, and thus the prestige and authority of the new regime. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. 
You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. But the political clubs and societies weren't just encouraging the people's anti-clericalism and fostering attitudes of contempt towards the crown. Through a range of activities, the clubs actively propagated what they stood for, not just what they stood against. Proudly advocating a program of universal male suffrage, political societies such as Danton's Cordeliers Club and Brousseau's Cercle Social made a concentrated effort to spread their Republican-leaning philosophies. In these clubs, of which there were perhaps 30 in Paris by May 1791, members were encouraged to refer to each other as brother and sister, and pamphlets and posters were produced on a near-daily basis advocating the principles and ideas of equality, fraternity, and liberty. As the revolution progressed, the political societies also became more sophisticated in their efforts to educate, aka radicalise, the people of Paris. The clubs started to cooperate and organise amongst themselves, and eventually created a central committee in May 1791. The efforts of the clubs to engage the people were undoubtedly successful. And by spring 1791, both the Parisian clubs and the Parisian sections were able to mobilise significant numbers of people in favour of their political positions. The result of all of this was that Paris was increasingly a hotbed for radical populism and indeed republicanism. Historian Robert Johnson notes, Until the winter of 1790, the revolution had not shown signs of becoming anti-monical, but at the turn of the year, republicanism at last raised its head. In short, the clubs, the sections, the press, and even the theatres were propagating ideas that undermined the legitimacy of the new regime, a regime which relegated many of the club's members to the status of passive citizens. Now, before the flight to Varennes, most people didn't say the R word in public. Republicanism was a bit like Voldemort. It was the form of government that shall not be named. But Republican sentiment and Republican ideals, although not necessarily labelled as such, were very much being actively and successfully spread amongst the people of Paris by the spring of 1791. Support for these ideas was particularly acute amongst the disenfranchised working class, a segment of society which was actively targeted by the democratic political societies. 
As a result, support for universal male suffrage and more direct democracy was thus gaining momentum. The radical democratic deputies of the legislature may not have wielded significant power within the National Assembly, but their ideological allies outside of it increasingly wielded tremendous power in the streets of Paris. While the far left was on the rise in the capital, the far right was on the rise in the countryside. Throughout 1790, the Assembly had assaulted the key institutions of the old regime, particularly the provinces, the parlements, the nobility and the church. By spring 1791, these ancient institutions were fast becoming the four horsemen of the counter-revolutionary apocalypse. While the administrative and judicial reforms of 1790 did not create the levels of unrest seen when Brienne tried to suppress the Parlements in 1788, certain regions did experience notable disturbances. Aix-en-Provence, for example, was both the home of a Parlement and a provincial capital prior to the introduction of departments. As a result, the judicial and administrative reforms simultaneously inflamed long-held regional rivalries and, far more importantly, threatened local livelihoods. In a similar way to how concerned citizens sparked the Day of Tiles in Grenoble back in June 1788, counter-revolutionary sentiment rose amongst the citizens of Aix-en-Provence shortly after the Assembly officially suppressed the Parlements in September 1790. The reforms jeopardised the employment of everyone from wig makers to law clerks, coach drivers to domestic servants, and of course the local peasantry were concerned that their loyal customers would soon be out of a job. Aristocrats and non-constitutional priests wasted no time in directing the anxieties of the people towards the cause of their newfound problems. Yep, you guessed it, the corrupt and misguided National Assembly. The town erupted in violence in December 1790, and it was only with the help of National Guard units from Marseille that royalist sympathies were contained. Conveniently, these guardsmen helped to demonstrate the increasing independence and radicalism of the National Guard, as they soon assisted with the lynching of prominent royalists in the town. But despite Aix-en-Provence being both a regional capital and home to a parlement, this urban community was not an outlier. It wasn't just in towns with parlements or strong regional identities that the ultra-royalists succeeded in their efforts to agitate against the assembly. Lyon experienced significant unrest throughout the latter half of 1790, so much so that the Comte d'Artois and his counter-revolutionary companions thought that they would be able to orchestrate a mass insurrection in the city. While that plan failed in December 1790, the counter-revolutionary nobles had, up until that point, been quite successful in harnessing the economic downturn of the silk industry into anger towards the national legislature. How did they do this? Well, amongst other measures, members of the local nobility paid agents to distribute royalist publications and pro-church pamphlets amongst the working class. My favourite part of all of this is that some of these scheming nobles were previously members of the National Assembly. That's what you get when you needlessly abolish aristocracy. But it wasn't just ultra-royalist aristocrats drumming up counter-revolutionary support in the provinces. Remember, it was the Catholic Church that became the Assembly's most tenacious and ferocious foe. 
As the feud between revolution and church escalated, so too did the disturbances in communities across the country. Non-constitutional priests used their pulpit to preach resistance to the heretical will of Paris, crying that the assembly had been seized by Protestants, Jews and Freemasons Rebellious priests called on the people to rise up in the name of God and King. The National Assembly responded by declaring these priests out of a job and tried to remove them from their posts. However, this attempt at forced removal only lent legitimacy to the claims that the church was under attack, and the result was pockets of unrest scattered across the country. In short, supporters of the counter revolution utilised controversial policies, local rivalries, deteriorating economic conditions and religious devotion to whip up anti-revolutionary sentiment and then sought to harness this sentiment to weaken and eventually overthrow the new regime. Thus, the Assembly's actions throughout 1790 and 1791 not only empowered the democratic far-left in Paris, but it also empowered the ultra-royalist far-right in the provinces. Both inside and outside the capital, the enemies of the status quo were numerous and growing. With little real power outside of the National Assembly, the constitutional monarchists of the centre watched helplessly as the revolution was undermined on numerous fronts. Before his death, Mirabeau's solution to this increasingly unstable mess was simple. Risky, but simple. The king should flee Paris call his banners and wage civil war against the radical democrats of the capital. The conservatives and ultra-royalists would rally behind him, and if the radicalism of Paris could be squashed, the revolution and the monarchy just might be saved. This daring and audacious plan, however, was missing a key ingredient, and Mirabeau knew it. That ingredient was a daring and audacious king. Louis XVI was many things. But he was not decisive. He was not strong-willed. He was not resolute. Mirabeau needed a Stannis Baratheon on the throne, and he had been given a personality far closer to that of his nephew Tommen. On a side note, however, if we just go way out, Sir Pounce is one hell of a cool name for a cat. I used to work at a veterinary clinic, and so I get a lot of joy out of clever pet names, and like, Sir Pounce is a ripper. My personal favourite was this one guy with two stocky French bulldogs who called one Panzer and the other Sherman. And if you get that reference, well, you'll agree with me, no doubt, that that was just utter naming brilliance. Anyway, I have really digressed. The personality of the king aside, the royal family didn't particularly trust Mirabeau. And so his plans for the royal family to flee the capital didn't go very far. But Mirabeau wasn't the only one preaching flight. The Queen was too. Marie Antoinette's plan was different, however. The Queen suggested that the King flee not to the provinces, but to the frontier. Once across the border in the safety of Austrian territory, the King could dictate his terms to the Assembly from a position of strength. Not only could he call his banners and prepare for civil war, but the forces of the monarchies of Europe could be enlisted to help. Marie Antoinette's brother, Leopold II, was the Holy Roman Emperor. Louis' cousin, Charles IV, was the King of Spain. 
by combining royalist French forces with the counter-revolutionary émigrés, with foreign troops and with hired mercenaries, Louis could lead an army back into France and restore the mighty Bourbon monarchy to its former glory. But the problem for Marie Antoinette was that this plan was a bit too obvious. Radical agitators in Paris had suspected the king's flight for months. Actually, years. Corners of the revolutionary press had feared the king would flee the orbit of the capital since before the October days in 1789. That's part of the reason why the market women forced the royal family from Versailles to Paris. But the recent departure of the king's aunts in February 1791 heightened suspicion that the king might attempt to escape. On the 18th of April, this suspicion mixed with the outrage regarding King Louis's decision to replace his chaplain with a non-constitutional priest. On the Monday before Easter, the king and his family tried to leave the Tuileries Palace for the Parisian suburb of Saint-Cloud. Fearing that this was the rumoured escape attempt, a mob gathered to prevent the king's departure. As the king tried in vain to convince the crowd to let the royal family pass, all manners of abuse were shouted at the monarchs. Keen to demonstrate that the king was not being held against his will, Lafayette, as commander of the National Guard, ordered his troops to clear the way. Demonstrating just how radical and autonomous the National Guard had become, Lafayette's troops refused to obey. One yelled veto as the king tried to secure safe passage, while others threatened Lafayette should he try to push the matter further. After almost two hours of commotion, the royal family finally gave up. Terribly upset, the queen remarked to Lafayette, At least you will acknowledge now that we are not free. The events of the 18th of April 1791 were undeniably traumatic for the royal family. But the failure of the royal family to leave the Tuileries Palace opens up one huge can of worms which has grey history written all over it. The historical ambiguity that the 18th of April relates to regards just when did King Louis decide to flee France. According to one historical school of thought, this event pushed the king to the point of no return. Historians such as Simon Sharma and Alain Belloc present the opinion that the king's inability to leave the palace on the 18th of April was what prompted Louis to finally decide to escape Paris. Other historians, however, are not so sure. Historian Jonathan Israel notes that the 18th of April was commonly believed to be an attempt to flee, and emphasises that Louis's real motivation to escape was fueled by the king's religious convictions. Until June, Louis XVI characteristically remained in two minds, loathing the revolution privately, while resisting pleas from advisers, family and supporters to flee abroad and lead an international counter-revolution backed by the papacy to defeat the revolution and extinguish its principles. It was Louis's religious sensibilities and sense of guilt for approving church reforms the papacy condemned that finally persuaded him to risk life, family and all he possessed, indeed the monarchy itself, 
by repudiating the 1791 constitution and liberal monarchism and seeking to join the emigres. Like historian Jonathan Israel, historian Eric Hazen agrees that the Pope's rejection of the civil constitution of the clergy and Louis's devout religious beliefs propelled the king to flight. But Hazen also notes the tremendous impact of Mirabeau's death. With the Count dead, Hazen argues that this left Louis under the influence of the Queen. And indeed, where this gets fascinating and where the rabbit holes start multiplying is if one shifts their attention from the King to the Queen. There are some historians who suggest that the real catalyst for flight came from neither the actions of the Parisian mob nor the conscience of the King, but from Marie Antoinette's secret diplomacy with the Austrian court. By April 1791, the Queen had been in contact with her allies in Vienna for some time. Her brother, Leopold II, was the Holy Roman Emperor, the Archduke of Austria, the King of Hungary and the King of Bohemia. And believe me, that's the short version of his official title. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in Leopold or his domains because we'll do that in a future episode. The point is, is that Leopold was a pretty big deal in Central Europe. Naturally, Marie Antoinette had been impressing upon her brother that he needed to come to her assistance. But if you presume that this is one of those scenarios where one family member is in distress and everyone else in the family drops everything to come to their rescue, don't. This is very much not one of those situations. Leopold had a variety of reasons to sit on his hands, and here are just four of them. Firstly, Leopold didn't actually know his sister particularly well. From what I can tell, Leopold departed Vienna at the age of 18 for Tuscany in 1765. Marie Antoinette, at the time, was almost 10 years old. Over the subsequent quarter of a century, I haven't been able to find anything that puts them at the same place at the same time. If someone listening to the show knows of an occasion, please do drop me a line and I'll add it in. As a result of this, however, the two had spent most of their lives apart, and they weren't particularly close. Both of them being one of 16 children probably didn't help the whole close-knit family bonding dynamics either. But the lack of heartstrings to be pulled was just the first of many reasons Leopold was slow to act. Secondly, Leopold, as the Archduke of Austria, had divergent interests to the Queen of France. As discussed all the way back in episode 4, Austria and France were historic rivals. Vienna watched with glee as France more or less teetered on the brink of anarchy. So long as the turmoil of Paris didn't endanger the royal family, the Emperor wasn't opposed to letting his historic adversary flail around chaotically, even if that historic adversary was notionally an ally. Thirdly, Leopold was, on a scale of things, a fairly enlightened European monarch. He didn't like everything the French were doing, but the ideas of the philosophes and some actions the revolutionaries were undertaking were by no means repulsive to him. Before becoming emperor, Leopold was the Grand Duke of Tuscany from 1765 to 1790. While in Italy, the Grand Duke had tried to introduce a constitution, and he also attempted to subjugate the Catholic Church to the state and nationalise some church property. Thus, while Leopold didn't like everything the revolutionaries were up to, 
He didn't hate it either. He certainly wasn't a crazed absolute monarch, energised with the power of Jesus Christ, just waiting to bring divine judgement upon the heretical revolution. Far from it. His Enlightenment sympathies meant that, well, he wasn't a supporter of the revolution per se, but he wasn't dead against it. Finally, Marie Antoinette was asking for a military intervention, or at least the threat of a military intervention. And that wasn't something the emperor was particularly keen on. Why? Because Austria was already at war. Battling the Ottoman Empire in modern-day Serbia and Romania, the Austrians were hardly keen to open up a second front. Furthermore, the emperor also feared Russian aggression in Poland should Austria get bogged down in the west, and was always suspicious of what the pesky Prussians were planning in the north. The complexities of the 16-dimensional geopolitical chessboard that was Europe at the time meant that the last thing Leopold wanted was a war with France. Unfortunately for Leopold, even emperors don't always get what they want. For all these reasons, Leopold had long been dragging his heels when it came to helping his sister Marie Antoinette. Since coming to the Austrian throne in February 1790, the Archduke continually gave the very convenient excuse that he could do nothing to help her until the royal family were safely outside of France. After the events of April 1791, however, it had become clear to the world that his sister was not so much a French queen as much as she was a Parisian prisoner. Thus, Marie Antoinette thought she would once again ask for his assistance. To her surprise, the reply she received was not what she was expecting. And it's here that things start to get very grey, very quickly. Historian John Dolberg Acton asserts that the reason why the royal family fled Paris in June 1791, just weeks after the events of April, was because of the response the Queen received from the Emperor. Or more accurately, the response of others, supposedly speaking, on the Emperor's behalf. After the events of April, the Queen sent a man named Dufour to Leopold to see if he had changed his mind regarding Austrian assistance. Dufour found the Emperor in Mantua in modern-day Italy. With the Emperor was the émigré leader and the King's younger brother, the Comte d'Artois. And in an interesting twist of history, with the Comte d'Artois was his de facto Prime Minister. Who was this individual, you ask? Well, it was none other than Charles Alexander de Cologne. Yes, that Cologne. The one that we last saw all the way back in episode 6, as he made his way to England after his assembly of notables became an assembly of rebels and more or less obstructed him out of a job. Well, Cologne was back and more or less had become the brains of the émigré's counter-revolutionary operations. When Dufour returned to Paris, he brought back a letter written by Cologne containing the Emperor's reply. According to the document, the Austrians would finally invade France, and they would do it in the summer with an army of 100,000 men and with the assistance of the Comte d'Artois and the émigrés. This invasion would occur before the 15th of July, but crucially, the armed intervention was conditional on the fact that the royal family were to sit tight and wait in Paris for their deliverance. It's here that things get extra murky. 
Historian John Dolberg Acton states that it's this letter, supposedly containing the Emperor's response, that was the catalyst for the royal family to flee the capital. And if you're scratching your head and thinking to yourself, didn't the letter just say, stay in Paris? Well, yes, it did. And that's why Marie Antoinette wanted out. Now, there are two historical schools of thought that relate to how Marie Antoinette interpreted her brother's reply and why this drove the royal family to suddenly embrace flight. The first is that the Queen believed the letter to be genuine and that her brother had changed his mind. In this scenario, the Queen feared that an Austrian army accompanied by the French emigres might result in another revolt in Paris. The Queen had barely escaped with her life during the October days, and she feared that the royal family might be deliberately sacrificed to the Parisian mob as the emigres marched upon the capital. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, why the hell would the emigres deliberately sacrifice the royal family? Well, emphasise the royal and de-emphasise the family. If a bloody anti-royalist revolt hit Paris and the royal family met a terribly unfortunate end, the Comte d'Artois would be the king of France. Both his older brothers and his nephew were in the capital, so should something regrettable happen to them at the hands of the godless, bloodthirsty revolutionaries, well, that would be a real shame for the Comte d'Artois. Furthermore, the Queen did not trust the Comte d'Artois or Cologne, and believed that should they pull this stunt off successfully, should the invasion succeed and the royal family survive, the subsequent regime of the princes might be worse than the regime of the revolutionaries. Historian John Dolberg Acton writes, The Queen was persuaded that she would be murdered if she remained at Paris while her brother's forces entered France. She believed that the emigres detested her, that they were prepared to sacrifice her husband and herself to their own cause, and that if their policy triumphed, the new masters would be worse than the old. She wrote to Mercy that it would become an intolerable slavery. She resolved to incur the utmost risk rather than owe her deliverance to Artois and his followers. So, the first way to interpret the royal family's response to the emperor's reply was that the king and queen thought invasion was imminent. Historian John Dolberg Acton notes, however, that the letter the monarchs received from Mantua may well have been interpreted differently. The document brought back by Dufour was viewed with some level of suspicion. It was unsigned and undated, and Cologne claimed to be the author although supposedly he had scribed the emperor's intentions. Another way to interpret the queen's response is that she did not believe her brother had changed his plans, and that he still insisted on the royal family leaving Paris before he could intervene. The document then, which insisted on the royal family staying in Paris, was a forgery and could only be the schemes of Cologne and the emigres. Again, the Queen reached the same conclusion, that Artois and his associates were conspiring for their own gains, and not for the benefit of Louis and Marie Antoinette. Thus, irrelevant of how the royal family interpreted the letter, irrelevant of whether or not they believed Austria would invade in just weeks, the King and Queen committed to flight. According to some historians. 
Remember, historians Sharma and Bellick point to the 18th of April, and Israel and Hazen point to the burden on Louis's devout conscience. Exactly when the royal family finally decided to publicly rebuke the revolution is a matter not known to history. What we do know, however, is when this intention became action. That date is the 20th of June, 1791. Before we move on, however, that document containing the emperor's plans was indeed a forgery. It just took 100 years before historians found Leopold's version of events at Mantua and were able to prove it. In reality, the emperor rejected the Comte d'Artois' plans to invade France before the royal family was safely outside the country. His policy had not changed. But the royal family didn't know that. In fact, many historians in the initial decades after the revolution didn't know that. Oh, how I love secretly forged documents that impact the course of history. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes. We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Having decided to escape the confines of the capital, a range of practicalities needed to be addressed. The first was money, and the second was a getaway vehicle. A Swedish nobleman by the name of Axel Versen helped the royal family acquire both and also helped to organise much of the initial escape out of Paris. Count Versen was a tall, handsome 36-year-old veteran of the American Revolutionary War. As in the 21st century, a foreign accent, a military uniform, and a healthy bank account made Versen quite popular with the ladies. But historians have bickered ever since as to whether or not Versen was the lover of Marie Antoinette herself. However, whether or not their considerable mutual affection for each other involved limited clothing is largely irrelevant. 
What matters is that through the Count, the monarchs had a means to escape. To ferry the royal family to safety, Count Fersen acquired a great green and yellow Berlin carriage. Fersen had initially pushed for two smaller, lighter, and more importantly, much faster carriages to aid the family's escape. But the Queen insisted that the family travel together. Thus, the result was the Berlin, with yellow wheels, white upholstery, and a painfully slow travel speed. The plan was relatively simple. The two monarchs would be disguised as servants for a Russian baroness and her children, and the baroness's children would be the royal children. After escaping Paris, the fugitives would head to the northeastern frontier, aiming for the fortress of Montmédy. The fortress was held by supposedly loyal troops and close to the border with Belgium, which was occupied at the time by the Austrian army. Along the way, loyal, royalist soldiers would rendezvous with the family and escort them to safety. Despite the odds against them, the first part of the plan, the most difficult part of this daring adventure, actually succeeded. Almost unbelievably, the royal family made it out of Paris. At 10pm on the night of the 20th of June, 1791, the Queen dressed up her six-year-old son as a beautiful little girl and ferried her children through an unguarded exit of the palace. Yes, you heard right, unguarded. Why was there an unguarded exit, you ask? Well, that exit belonged to lodgings of a recently emigrated noble, and the exit was conveniently left unlit, unlocked, and unguarded. The Tuileries Palace may have been a prison in the middle of the capital, but it was a prison which had one door unlocked, and that was enough for escape. The Queen passed her children to Count Versen, who was dressed as a coach driver, and quickly shuffled the children into a nearby carriage. The Queen proceeded to exit from the same door roughly two hours later, and in one of the great what-ifs of this story, was almost caught by Lafayette, who was passing in a coach. The Queen had to press her face up against a wall so that the commander of the National Guard wouldn't recognise her. What was Lafayette doing at the palace? Well, supposedly, Mayor Bailly was worried a plot was afoot, and Lafayette was doing a personal inspection of the palace's perimeter to ease the nerves of his political ally. Lafayette failed to recognise the Queen, and failed to recognise that a plot really was afoot. This failure prompts historian George Lefebvre to ask if Lafayette was just negligent or in fact complicit. Contemporaries on the far left asked similar questions, although in reality Lafayette was just genuinely unlucky. So the Queen escaped detection, but in a panicked state managed to become lost in the poorly lit alleyways adjacent to the palace. Marie Antoinette finally made it to Count Versen, but a precious 30 minutes had been wasted. This was a race against the clock, and minutes could not be spared. The King's Escape route was different, and reminds me of something that belongs in a Hollywood movie. For at least the previous week, a gentleman by the name of Chevalier de Cogny had deliberately left the palace at roughly the same time every night. Not only did Cogny consistently depart the palace at the same time, but he also consistently wore a brown suit and a green overcoat. Cogny's general physical appearance wasn't too different from that of the king's, 
So on the night of the 20th of June, Louis put on a brown suit and a green overcoat, and with the assistance of a grey wig, quite literally walked out the front door. Having taken the 18th century equivalent of polyjuice potion, Louis walked right past his captors and reconvened with his family. By three in the morning, on the 21st of June, 1791, the royal family were successfully departing the outskirts of Paris. The problem for the royal family, however, was time. They had lost precious time escaping the capital, and far from making it up, they kept losing it. One of just many delays occurred when a wheel hit a stone post, breaking the straps which connected the carriage to the horses. Obviously, these straps, or traces as they're called, needed to be repaired. Even when moving, however, the getaway vehicle was far from ideal, travelling at no more than about 7-10 to miles per hour when the roads were favourable. This consistent hemorrhaging of time had two key consequences. Firstly, it played havoc with the planned rendezvous with military escorts. Secondly, it gave the revolutionaries in Paris the opportunity to catch up. The first military escort meant to accompany the royal family waited for their carriage near a town named Pont de Somville. According to the plan, the royal family were meant to arrive at no later than 2.30pm, but by 4.30pm there was still no sign of them. This was problematic because the commander of 40 hussars sent to escort the family, a gentleman named Duc de Tozel, was hardly receiving a warm welcome from the local inhabitants. The peasants didn't believe Trezel's lie that his men had arrived to escort military funds to the frontier. Instead, they believed that he had come to collect long-overdue taxes. The result is that the longer the men stayed, the more agitated the peasants became, and eventually pitchforks and muskets were fast finding their way into the hands of the aforementioned agitated peasants. By 4.30 in the afternoon, two hours after the planned rendezvous time, the Duc de Chazol decided he needed to get out of this increasingly hostile predicament. Presuming that the escape had failed, the Duke sent a messenger to other military escorts that something must have gone wrong and that the royal family were not coming. After waiting by himself for another hour, Chazol retreated from the rendezvous location at roughly 5.30pm. The royal family arrived an hour later. Despite the lack of a military escort, Louis was beginning to feel much more confident. The hardest part of the whole plot was getting out of Paris, which he had done. He mused that Lafayette must be feeling rather embarrassed, and he could almost taste the personal freedom which had eluded him for the last year and a half. But one error was feeding into the next, and a series of improbable events were conspiring to deny Louis his freedom. Upon arriving in the town of Saint-Manahol, another military escort was meant to be awaiting the royal family. However, the dragoons in Saint-Manahol had run into much the same problems as the hussars in pont de Somville. The local townsfolk were mighty suspicious of the soldiers, and so when their commander received word that the royal family would not be arriving, he let his men indulge in doing their bit for the local economy, a.k.a dismount and go for a drink. When the monarchs finally arrived, the commander of the dragoons approached the carriage, foolishly saluted, and quickly told the king the plans had gone astray, 
and to carry on without them. Now, the townsfolk were already suspicious of the dragoons, but a postmaster named Drouet saw this and thought it was incredibly odd. As fate would have it, Drouet was previously a dragoon himself, and he had seen the Queen a handful of times at Versailles during his years of service. Before the carriage continued towards the eastern frontier, Drouet caught a glimpse of the Queen and recognised her. Furthermore, he inspected a portrait of the King on a note and suspected he had spotted him in a carriage as well. Drouet told his wife what he thought he saw, and she responded in a manner which you might expect if you walked home one day to tell your spouse that you saw the President at Walmart or Queen Liz on the tube. Drouet's wife more or less told him he was nuts, seeing things and not to cause any unnecessary trouble. But later that evening, news from Paris arrived. The king and queen were on the run. Now, Drouet was convinced and he soon rode east with a companion in pursuit of the royal family. The race was on. Riding with speed, Drouet initially planned on travelling towards Verdun, assuming the royal family was heading to Metz. Drouet, and indeed the king's pursuers more broadly, had no idea the route the monarchs were actually taking. However, a passerby and associate of Drouet had heard a carriage ask which way to Varennes when it was at a crossroads, and thus the retired dragoon, by some minor miracle, knew the route of his prey. The pursuit of the fugitives at night was nothing short of miraculous, according to historian Allaire Belloc. He took the steep bank into the trees with Guillaume, and though the two men knew the woods well, it was miraculous that they could thus gallop through a clouded night, through paths which I, who have followed them in full day, found torturous and confused and often overgrown. He came down with his companion into Varenne town by the lane that leads from the forest above. It was asleep save for one light where men were sitting drinking. The hour was just on eleven. They could not tell whether they had won or lost in that great race. But Drouet, full of immediate decision, roused here a house and there another, blocked the bridge that led eastward to the farther part of the town and out toward the army by dragging across it an empty wagon that lay by and then strode up the main street of the place to find whether he had won or lost. Having arrived in Versailles at roughly 11pm, Drouet quickly summoned the local procurer, a man by the name of Soss. As the royal carriage approached the bridge in the town, Drouet, Soss and a group of national guardsmen blocked their path. Luckily for Drouet, the ex-dragoon, who had ridden at such a pace and through such conditions that historian Hilaire Belloc describes the feat as miraculous, well, he had arrived in Varennes before the royal family. As the carriage approached the bridge, men cried for it to halt. The Berlin continued to drive towards the bridge. Halt! Halt! One more step and we fire! The carriage came to an abrupt stop. And so did the future of the French monarchy. Soss inspected the documents of the Baroness and her associates, and all was in order. But Drua insisted. I tell you, the king and queen are in that carriage. 
I've seen them. If you let them go, you'll be guilty of treason. Soss relented and escorted the royal family into his nearby shop. A local judge by the name of Jacques Dettez was summoned as he had lived at Versailles and could settle the matter beyond any doubt. When Dettez walked in, he immediately recognised the Baroness's steward, dropped to his knee and exclaimed, O sire. Louis replied, Yes, I am indeed your king. Even at this point, not all hope was lost. Having explained his motivations for escape, the king was actually making progress on talking his way out of this predicament. According to historian Christopher Hibbert, Soss told the royal family that he would provide an escort for their continued journey on the next day. But as the night wore on, men from Paris arrived. The men brought with them a decree from the National Assembly. The document confirmed Lafayette's orders from that morning, that the royal family should be apprehended and returned to Paris. Upon reading the decree, Louis knew his gamble had failed. There is no longer a king in France. Thank you for listening to episode 21, Run Louis Run. Next episode will follow the actions of the Assembly in the wake of the King's escape, and will cover the brief reign of the Tricolour Terror. Now, before you go, if you're enjoying Grey History, then there are a few things you can do to help the show. One is by supporting Grey History on Patreon, and you can find us on either patreon.com or use the link on the website or in the show notes. Donating a dollar or two a show helps much more than you may think, and also gives you access to a range of exclusive Patreon-only content, such as bonus episodes and episode extras. Secondly, as always, if you've enjoyed the show, please do spread the word about Grey History to friends, family, colleague, anyone who you think might enjoy the podcast that explores the grey. Finally, if you're listening to the show through an app that allows reviews, particularly written reviews, they always help a lot as well. If you have any questions or queries, please do send them through, either by the Facebook page or greyhistory.com. As always, thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day.